Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Lord, thank you that you do provide for everything that we need as your people. And God, now as we turn to your word to hear from you, we are again of our, aware of our need for you. And so, Lord, we ask and I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As always, Bibles provided back there, page 957 in that particular copy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm, I'm roped in by my headset right now, and I can't move my head. There we go, just so you knew what I was doing right there. Well, this morning, as we come to God's Word, we have a task in front of us that really we have every Sunday morning when we come to this point uh, in the worship service, when we're about to hear from God's Word, when, when the, the pastor is about to preach it and speak it to us. And it's really, it's a task that we have anytime we gather with one another for Bible study and, and really anytime, even individually, when we read God's Word. It's this task of, of, of a creating a bridge or finding the bridge between an ancient text and today, our contemporary situation. Uh, this is really our understanding as God's people of God's Word and how it functions in our doctrine of Scripture, that, that the Scriptures were written down, all these words are God's Word, but they came to us through, through human instruments, right? People wrote these things down, and they wrote them down a long time ago. I mean, the newest parts are almost 2,000 years old. And the older parts than that are more like closer to 3,500 or 4,000 years old. And they talk about stuff that happened even uh, before, you know, in prehistory, before we started, started recording time. And so we have an ancient text but our understanding of that text and how it came to us as though it came through the minds and the writing and the thought in the hearts of human beings so that there were truly human authors, with the small a, overseeing that and superintending that whole process was the author of all things, capital A author, God himself. And so when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture... Uh, we're not just talking about people who felt very inspired to write down thoughts about God. And we're not just saying it, it inspires us, though it does that. We're talking that, that God inspired, he breathed out his word through his Holy Spirit, through human authors who wrote it down. And so this, we can truly say, is God's word. And it's completely true, and it is completely trustworthy, and it has full authority over our lives. So we stand under God's word every time we hear it preached, truly. 
But there's a challenge there. Because again, this stuff took place a long time ago. In a, not in a galaxy, but in a place far, far away from here. Ancient people, ancient text. Fast forward, 2017, Sycamore, Illinois. How does it relate to us? And that task is certainly before us, and maybe uh, in a little bit bigger way this morning, because the text that we're going to look at in some ways is so incredibly disconnected from our experience this morning. And it is so incredibly relevant. On the one hand, this text talks about something that I am quite sure I can say with confidence, none of us, maybe one of us, maybe, maybe, maybe at some point, but I would say none of us are ever going to deal with the situation that's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. On the other hand, at the same time, through the Apostle Paul, God gives us a word that speaks to something that we deal with, you and I, on a daily basis, all the time. In fact, you might be dealing with it right now. The Apostle Paul says it is something that is common to humanity. This is as common as being human. Everyone deals with this. And what he's talking about is temptation. Temptation. Listen to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer described temptation. At the point that we are being tempted and, 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 and the sinful nature that's still part of our, our fleshly existence uh, is flaring up, he describes it this way. Our members, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, that is evil desire, anti-God desire, which is both sudden and fierce. See if this doesn't describe temptation in your life. Desire which is both sudden and fierce, and with irresistible power, desire seizes, seizes mastery of the flesh, and all at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. And it makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed or money. At this moment, the moment where you're just about to give in to temptation, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And only desire for the creature is real. Isn't that the way temptation works? This morning we're going to look at temptation because as Paul writes in this text, this is something that is common to all of us. It's common to our experience as Christians. Now the temptation that the Corinthians were facing some 2,000 or so years ago uh, it is, is very, in a lot of ways, like I said, hard to relate to. So I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing it. We've talked about it uh, quite a bit, but I should, I should just mention it. And I'm going to mention it in, con in connection with uh, verses 14 through 22, which I'm just going to admittedly gloss over this morning. But we're going to come back to them when we talk about uh, the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks because they speak specifically in many ways about our understanding of how commun what's going on in communion. 
But if you recall, we're in this section in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 through chapter 10 where Paul is responding to an inquiry in a letter from the Corinthian church. And although it appears they're asking a question uh, and wanting to get Paul's ruling on whether they can... uh, whether they can participate in a certain activity, namely going into pagan temples, which were not just places of worship of of idols and false gods, but they were also sort of, uh, you know, the local golden corral of the city. You could go there to eat and have a steak. Maybe Ruth's Chris. I don't know which, you know, depends which temple you went to. But that was a place where people ate, and they ate meat and food that have been dedicated and sacrificed to idols. And basically what the Corinthians are saying in their letter to Paul is, hey Paul, we just want you to affirm that we have the right to do this, to go to an idol temple and eat there because an idol isn't really something. An idol ain't no thing. It's it's really, it's nothing. We can worship there. We're not polluted by the idols. We believe in Jesus. We know the idol isn't anything. We can eat there. It's not a problem. Right, Paul? Right? Don't we sometimes do this? You go to your elder, you go to your home group leader, you go to your women's Bible study leader, and, and you're, you're, you kind of do it like, hey, I want to get your counsel on this, but you really just want them to affirm you and what you already think. And that's really where the, the Corinthians were. We can do this, right? We have the right to do this. And Paul says emphatically, here he gives his emphatic answer to that. If you look at chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says, here's my, here's my ruling, my beloved, loved ones, flee from idolatry. Guys, is there any part of that, Corinthians, that you don't understand? Go the other way. You've got no business being in a temple with idols. Now, he's going to talk later about buying this meat in the marketplace. That's a different story. But here he says, listen, if you're in that temple, people are sacrificing this stuff to idols. Yes, an idol is not a thing in the sense that it's another god. But this all has to do with, there's a spiritual world, he says, going on here. There really are demons. There really are evil spirits. They really are part of of the evil one's uh, cohort. And you don't want to mess with that. You participate when you gather in the Lord's Supper. You, 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 you eat the bread. You, you drink the cup. That, that, you're taking that into your body to show your unity with Christ and our connection to one another. You participate in that. You have no business taking something into your body and, and being connected and in fellowship with people who are worshiping what is, what is underpinned by demons. And so Paul says in verses 14 through 22, don't do it. Don't push it. Don't, make, don't push the Lord to jealousy. Our God is a jealous God. That's an Old Testament theme, but it, he didn't change. He continues to be a jealous God. And, and that's a good quality. Sometimes we talk about jealousy as a bad quality, and it is. But if something belongs to you, and it's, in, it's being drawn away, You're jealous of that. God is rightly jealous of his people worshiping other gods. And so God is a jealous God. And Paul says, don't push it. Flee from idolatry. Now, that's the ancient text. That's that's the situation that seems so foreign to us. None of us are ever going to deal with that in its particulars. So how does it come to us as something that is so relevant that Paul can say, this is common to every human being and in our human experience? Well, at the end of chapter 9... 
uh, Paul, in this whole section where he is exhorting them and making his, his point about this, says something very interesting. He talks about the, the Christian life being like an Olympic race and about how uh, Olympians go into strict training. Uh, they exercise extreme self-control. They, they discipline their bodies. And Paul says, I do that in my Christian life lest I should be disqualified. Lest in preaching to others, in telling them the truth of the gospel, in pointing them to Christ, I should be disqualified. That's a pretty amazing thing to hear the Apostle Paul say, don't you think? That the Apostle Paul said that there, that there, there could be a, a way that I could be disqualified, that I could not finish the race. Of course, his whole point in saying this is that we would finish the race. And then Paul turns that to the Corinthians here, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorance is not bliss in this case. I don't want to be disqualified, Paul says, but I don't want you guys to be disqualified. I don't want you to not finish the race. And so in this passage that we're going to look at, verses 1 through 13, Paul, Paul is pleading with them. He's urging them. He's warning them. Verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. Um, uh, verse uh, 11, he says, I want to instruct you. I want to make this strong instruction. Verse 12, take heed, take heed lest you fall. So let's, let me read the passage to us. Paul's instruction regarding temptation. This is God's holy word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the desert. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for us. They were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he or she fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, this is God's holy word, and we thank him for it.
Paul is clearly in a, in a warning mode here, right? Uh, if, if you had an interactive Bible, there should be red lights and flashes all around this passage saying, warning, 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 listen up. And Paul uses a term to say how he, why he's, he's the, the mode he's in in verse, um, in verse 13 here as he's speaking to them. Excuse me, in verse uh, 11. He says, I'm telling you about some things that happened in the history of God's Old Testament people, in the history of Israel, but they were written down for us, and he says in verse 11, for our instruction. And that, that word instruction there is nuthetao, uh, it means admonishment, it means warning, it means strong instruction. And so this is not like, you know, sometimes when I put stuff together, it comes with an instruction manual. I usually look at it after I'm done and figure it out I didn't do something right. And I've noticed with instruction manuals, sometimes there's like instruction step one, step two, find this piece, put that bolt on there, okay, pretty, pretty basic, pretty, uh, you know, low excitement kind of stuff. But then there are certain portions in the instruction manual, like when I was putting together this fireplace insert that had to do with, with, with uh, gas and lighting things, that has that sort of symbol with the exclamation point in, right? That says, okay, if you do this and this happens, you know, call the fire department, which is literally what it said in those instructions. And fortunately, I didn't have to do that. I still have eyebrows. I'm, I'm in good shape. But those are the, that, this is, that's the kind of instruction this is. This isn't the like, yeah, find that bowl, put those two things together. No, this is the warning. This is, this is the, the exclamation point of the instruction manual. And so I'm just going to prepare you. This, this, this may feel a bit heavy this morning. But that's how God's word comes to us, right? God's word comes to us in, in a lot of different tones, a lot of different ways. And this morning, it is coming to us as a strong warning, a strong word of instruction. And so I want to draw those out of God's word this morning. Three instructive warnings regarding temptation to sin. For us, for God's people, three instructive warnings. And the first is this, beware of spiritual complacency. People of God, beware of spiritual complacency. Paul begins in the first five verses of this text to warn the Corinthian believers of the real danger of disqualification by pointing out the benefits that all of God's people had in the Old Testament. Again, Paul's methodology here is to look to God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, the stories that we can all read in the Old Testament, and, and, and understand how that applies to us, to God's people today, to the church of Jesus Christ. And so he, he points back, and, and notice that the, all, the, all the alls, <laughs> four alls, all of them passed through the, the sea, the, the walls of the sea when they were delivered out of Egypt. And all of them, in, in that sense, were, were, had, a, had a sort of baptism through the sea and through the cloud of God's presence that followed them and the pillar of fire at night. And they all ate the spirit, same spiritual food or miraculous food. Do you remember what that food was? What was it? Yes. What was it? What is it? Yes. This is kind of like who's on first, isn't it? Because the name of the food literally was, what is it? The word manna means, what is it? 
And so I just, I imagine them doing an Abbott and Costello out in the desert. What is, you want some? What is it? Yes, okay. They ate the same miraculous food. They drank the same miraculous drink that God miraculously provided out of a rock. One at the beginning of the journey that Moses was told to strike. One at the end of the journey Moses was told not to strike, but he did it anyway. And God provided for us. They all, they all experienced all these amazing privileges and blessings of being God's people. But only a few finished the race. In fact, God says with most of them, or Paul says with most of them, God was not pleased. How many of the original hundreds of thousands of Israelites that were delivered out of Egypt, how many of those who were adults made it into the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses. Not even Aaron made it in. With most of them, God was, yes, with most of them, God, at the end of the day, was displeased. And so I think, I think we need to understand here that the difference between assurance, which Christians can have and believers ought to have, assurance of God's grace, we ought to be secure in God's grace because God promises to preserve those who have trusted Jesus to the end. But that doesn't mean we can be presumptuous about our Christian experience. And that, I believe, is what this word is getting at. The difference between being assured and being presumptuous as a follower of Christ. In the Christian who is assured has their confidence in God. And so there's active faith, trusting in him, repentance and faith. That's the Christian life, really. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. The person who is presumptuous has their confidence in something else, in their own performance, in Christian activities. I went to church this morning. I went to my Bible study. I had my quiet time. I went to winter camp. I cried at winter camp. Whatever it is, something I do. All good things that, that can help grow our faith, but no, none of those activities are the basis of our confidence and assurance. The person who has assurance is, is vigilant. They're prepared for temptation. Uh, they've got a game plan, and I hope this morning will help you to have a game plan. The person who is presuming is ripe for failure. Several times Paul uses the term, they fell, they fell. I don't want you to fall. The person with true assurance, the Christian with true assurance, will endure through temptation. The person who is presuming on God's grace will yield to temptation and perhaps even sin with a high hand, which is when one says, you know what? I know that this is not what, God's right, what God wants. I know that I'm about to sin against him. But I know God is gracious and he will forgive me. Friends, that is presumption. And that is the thinnest ice a person can possibly be on. The Christian with true assurance, when they are tempted, the result is that they endure and that their faith is strengthened even through the temptation. For the person who is presuming on God's grace or leaning on their own Christian performance or their own, the fact that they're part of a church or their parents are Christians or whatever it is, will fail 
at the time of temptation and their faith will be stunted and perhaps even shipwrecked. Friends, each of us, each of us must be careful not to underestimate our tendency to be overconfident about our Christian experience and about the privileges that we enjoy as God's people. That's the example that Paul is pointing to in the Israelites, with the Israelites. And the aim of this message is not that our faith would be stunted, not that our faith would be shipwrecked, but that it would be strengthened. That we would have a game plan for the time of temptation from God's word and that our confidence would be in him. So let's, let's start moving in that direction. So beware of spiritual complacency. Secondly, be aware of the heart motives that lead to sin. Be aware of the, of the heart motives. We talk about the heart. The Bible talks about the heart as, as the central location of, of our desires, of what we love, of what we pursue, of what we cherish, of what we value. And temptation happens all in the realm of what we call our heart. The place of desire. And, and Paul lays out for us, wow, not a highlight reel, from Israel's past, but, but a low light reel, sort of a hall of shame, Fall, four different instances from the time of Israel being delivered out of Egypt and out of slavery and their 40-year journey toward the promised land. Four different events that, that sort of help us to, to sort of give us a temptation 101. This is what temptation looks like and sort of this is the what not to do picture. And verse 7 talks about the, the golden calf incident. That Moses went up on the mountain, a lot of thunder and lightning, a lot of scary stuff going on there. He's getting the law of God from up there. The people of Israel are down with Aaron, and they don't know what happened to Moses and say to Aaron, Moses is probably gone. Why don't you just, um, we still want to worship God. We're not done with Yahweh. But it would really help us. It would help. It would enhance our worship. If we had, I don't know, a golden calf maybe. Golden calf, we could worship God through, still, still God, love God, but we're going to worship him through the golden calf because that's, we kind of like that, that we're used to that kind of stuff from our Egypt experience. So if we could just kind of have it, if we could just kind of have it both ways, Moses, still worshiping God, but also have the golden calf, or Aaron. And so Aaron did that. And um, God's judgment ensued. Look again at the text, verse 7. Uh, they engaged in idolatry. And of course, Paul is pointing to the idolatry that these folks in Corinth are likely to do. They sat down and ate, just like the Corinthians are sitting down to eat. But then they rose up and engaged into, in all kinds of immorality. And God judged them. The next incident, which is close to that one, uh, in verse 8, is the incident where they worship the god Baal at Peor. And it just kind of gets worse from this point. And Paul reminds them that, they're, that God's people in the Old Testament at this, at this place, they worship Baal of Peor. The text says in Numbers 25, with some strong language that's in the Bibles, that the people of Israel hoard after the Moabites. And the writer chooses that term very precisely. 
to say that it wasn't only sexual immorality that the men were involved in. They were certainly involved in that. But that it was connected to the worship of the god Baal and and the greater infidelity, the greater unfaithfulness, was that the people were being unfaithful to God. God who was their true husband, who had redeemed them and saved them out of the land of bondage, out of the place of slavery, out of Egypt. And so in the first temptation, you see the the, the wanting to have it both ways. See if you recognize some of these in your own life. In the second temptation, the temptation is that sensuality, physical pleasure is going to be more satisfying than the joy and the holiness of obedience. Third example. It's not getting any better here. Verse 9. It's the bronze snake incident from Numbers 21. People begin to grumble against Moses and grumble against God, grumble against Moses' leadership. Why did you bring us out in the desert? God, why did you bring us out in the desert just to, to kill us, just so that we're going to die out here? They thought they knew better than God. So God sent poisonous snakes that bit them. They died, many of them. If you remember, the only way that they could be saved was to to look at that bronze serpent, was to look to that one that was on that wooden pike, and they would be saved. But more of them died, more bodies in the desert. And then finally, in verse 10, it's the story of, of a rebellion led by a guy named Korah in Numbers 16. Similar to the bronze snake incident, the people are grumbling against Moses. Korah leads a mutiny and is going to say, hey, ditch Moses and Aaron, follow me. And the accusation there was that God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Isn't that where we're often in the midst of temptation? I think I might just do that. I think I might just say that. So I've got to take things into my own hands. God, God may not have this one covered fully. This is the hall of shame of, of God's Old Testament people's uh, history in the desert. And graphically, Paul again says in verse 5, they were overthrown in the wilderness or they were scattered. The word is very graphic. It's the idea of bodies scattered, dead bodies scattered in the desert. You've ever seen one of those horrible uh, pictures maybe from the Civil War or of um, Normandy and the beach on D-Day and you see the bodies strewn across the field or dead soldiers strewn across the beach. That's the picture here. But there's a 40-year trail from, from Egypt and salvation to the promised land. And behind that trail are bodies scattered in the wilderness. Friends, God's grace to us today is that these just aren't interesting or even um, horrible things in history to think about, but these things are written down for our instruction. It is God's grace to us that these things were recorded in his word and written down by Moses in the Old Testament and, and by Paul now in the New Testament. And so God's intent is that the failings of the Israelites in the wilderness are for the church today admonitions not to flirt with sin, but to exercise faith in the midst of temptation. And it helps us to read our Bibles. 
It helps us to understand where we fit in the story. Uh, Paul says, these things are written for you upon whom the end of the ages has come. Jesus has come. His kingdom is being established. You are part of that through faith by God's grace. And so these things are for you upon whom the end of the ages has come. And, And friends, we need to understand where we fit in the story. Because as we look at at the story in the Bible of God's redemptive work unfolding, we tend to think maybe we're the hero. We tend to want to relate to Moses more than the complaining Israelites. You know, we tend to think that, that, that we're David. We're more like David, but we're not. We are not the giant killer. We are the frightened soldiers in God's army who don't care enough about God's honor to step out in faith. We're the foolish sheep who need a shepherd, a true shepherd, a good shepherd who will risk his life facing the enemy on our behalf. Friends, that's the picture, that's the what not to do picture. Now we turn to what to do and how God provides the grace to fight temptation. So far, it's been, it's been pretty dark. Like that little boat out in the sea, wobbling in the waves, about to be overtaken. But then out in the distance is, is, a, is a light, the beacon of the lighthouse. And we're moving there right now. We're moving toward that light. We're moving towards God's, God's grace. And so third, let's, let's behold... Let's look at God's grace when tempted. I didn't really want to use the word behold, but I was too tempted to have another B word so they would all be Bs. Look at, look to God's grace. J.I. Packer puts it this way about God's grace. This is 100% true. Take this to the bank. Let this encourage you this morning. Where grace exists, it reigns. Where grace exists, it reigns. It is the dominant factor in the situation. Friends, we we all face all kinds of temptations. Some of you are facing really difficult temptations, ongoing temptations. Hear this morning that there is grace for that temptation. And God's grace is the dominant factor in the situation. He reigns. And so our response as believers is to exercise faith, is to have active faith in the thick of those temptations because temptations are common to all of us. We're not getting around that. In fact, that's the first thing that we need to to realize and we need to trust in as we exercise active faith in the midst of temptation. Friends, realize that temptation is a normal part of the Christian life. I know that may not sound very comforting, but expectations are a big deal. You know, when I was a kid, I I enjoyed going to the demolition derby. Uh, My uncle was often entered in the demolition derby. He was a real car guy. And I mean, what little boy doesn't love watching cars smash into one another? And it, it was great. I loved it. 
De- I thought the demolition derby was great. These guys were, they were out for each other. They had the fire in their eyes. You, and you know when you're in demolition derby, you've got to be bobbing and weaving and having your head on the swivel or somebody's going to ram into you. You know that when you pull into that lot where the demolition derby is going on. But can you imagine just driving your car and you pull into a parking lot thinking you're just going to pull in and park? and not realizing you just pulled into a demolition derby. And you look over there, and there is a guy with, with, you know, flames coming out of his ears about to back into you. And over here is someone who wants to ram you this way. How are you going to respond? You're going to be shocked. You're going to be upset. You're going to be wondering what's going on. You're going to be put out. It's all about expectations. As believers, we are in a situation where temptation is part of our existence. We live, though we are redeemed through Christ, praise God, we still live in a fallen world where we have an ongoing battle with the world, with the flesh, and with our enemy, the devil. And so we ought to expect this. We ought to be ready for it. It should not shock us. The Christian life is not a life of leisure. So Paul was saying at the end of chapter 9 when he compared it to training for uh, the Olympics. He uses this word for training this, of extreme self, uh, self-control of training. It's, it's the word agonizomai. It's a Greek word. You know what it means in English? Agonies. Oh my. Intensity. Why does Paul instruct us in Ephesians chapter 6, to put on the full armor of God. We're in a battle. And if you have a shield, if you have a helmet, you can't expect that the shield and the helmet aren't going to get a few dents in them, all right? That the sword that you're wielding isn't going to have a few nicks in it. There does remain a Sabbath rest. And I so appreciated our time around the table last Sunday thinking about the Sabbath rest, how Jesus is our rest. But we live in the midst of the ongoing battle as well, the rhythm of rest and the rhythm of being in the thick of it. Uh, We're in the story. If you're a believer, you've come out of Egypt. God has redeemed you. You've been baptized uh, in Christ. You've been united to him Just like the Israelites went through the Red Sea and had a sort of baptism. But but we're not yet to the promised land. And so we're on our path. We're on that journey. And so we need to expect temptation to be a regular part of the Christian life. Secondly, we need to move forward from them because that's from there, because that's not the end of the story. Secondly, we need to rejoice in God's unchanging character. Rejoice in God's unchanging character in the midst of your temptation. Paul says beautiful three words in in verse 13. God is faithful. God is faithful. He has your best interests in mind. Understand that the word for temptation in the Bible is typically the same word that is used for trial or testing. See, when God is, when, is allowing temptation into our lives, he's, he's testing us. I bet most of you know uh, James chapter 1, verse 2, 
Most of you know it, but it's nobody's life verse. Count it all joy, my friends. Some translations count it pure joy. When? When you face all kinds of different trials. Trials of various kinds. But why do you consider it joy? Because God is up to something. He's testing your faith because he wants to produce steadfastness. And then let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and lacking nothing. God is faithful. He's up to something. Paul says it himself in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5. But we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Israel's sin was that they grumbled against God. God, you have evil, you have evil plans in mind for us, for tempting us and, and testing us like this. Listen to how a pastor from a long time ago, Samuel Rutherford, put it in regard to temptation. He said, I find it most true that the greatest temptation outside of hell is to live without temptations. If water stands, it, it rots, it gets stagnant. Faith is better for the sharp winter storm in its face, and grace withers without adversity. Our faith is better for the sharp winter storm that it faces, and grace withers without adversity. Something we can relate to in this part of the world, the winter storm. I don't know about you, but I like telling my family members who live in the South how living amidst this kind of weather just makes us stronger people, more resilient. God uses those difficulties, not, not those difficulties, but temptations, trials in our lives to strengthen us, to, to, to sharpen us, to make us more like Christ. You can trust Him. He's faithful. Also, rejoice in God's unchanging character. He is sovereign. Paul says He will not allow he will not allow temptations beyond a certain point. In other words, God rules over your temptations. He's regulating it. He's limiting it. Think about the book of Job. Satan could only do what, to Job what God would allow him to do. Terrible things happened to Job, but Satan was always on a leash. God was sovereign. And the temptation, when being tempted, is to say, well, where is God right now? Doesn't he care? Just like Bonhoeffer said, at that point, God does not seem very real to us. But listen to, listen to the promise of Scripture. This is true of your God from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, ultimately. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Friends, that, that's a promise 
that you can take to the bank. That, that's a scripture that maybe you should read and I should read in the midst of temptation. God, I'm dealing with this right now and I'm, I'm, just, about to, I'm just about to cross the line. I need to hear from you. Here's God's word. From where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He made it all. He is in control of it. He is ruling over it well, and he is doing so for our good. Romans 8, 28, God works all things, even the temptations that we face, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then finally, what does is, what is active faith look like? in the midst of temptation, it looks like relying on God to provide for our endurance. Relying on God to provide for your endurance. The Lord will provide. Paul says the Lord will provide a way of escape. Now, we need to understand the way of escape. Uh, the way of escape is not like a trap door that you can just jump through in the midst of temptation. It's not a golden parachute that you can jump out of the plane and, and pull in the midst of temptation. Uh, the, the, it's a very interesting word there. One word that gets translated the way of escape. Um, commentator Leon Morris describes it this way. It's, it's like a narrow passage in the gap of the mountains. He says the image, imagery is that of an army trapped in rugged country which manages to escape from an impossible situation through a mountain pass. It's sort of like Indiana Jones kind of stuff. Trapped. There's no way out. Then there's some light. There's the way of escape. But you've got to get from here to the way of escape. And there's a lot of arrows. And there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown at you. And your shield of faith and your helmet of salvation get bumped and get, get dented. But God has provided a way of escape. And notice that what the goal is. The goal is to endure. Or, or sometimes it's translated to bear up. To bear up under the pressure and to stand. There's pressure. There's testing. But what is God doing? According to 1 Peter 1, God is showing the genuineness of our faith which is tested. Just like gold is tested and the impurities burned off, God tests our faith so that it will, it will make it through more precious than gold to the praise and the glory and the honor of God himself. And so friends, as we face temptation, our confidence cannot be in our Christian experience in the Christian stuff that we do, anything in our past, that's fatal. But our confidence must be in God's provision that He is faithful. That's where our confidence lies. That's, where, that's the place to exercise faith in the midst of temptation, that God is faithful. God is faithful. It says he's faithful in verse 13 to not allow you and me to be tempted beyond your ability. Beyond your ability. What does that mean? God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. 
Does it mean when I, I often hear people saying that God won't give you anything that you can't handle? Hear people say that? God won't give you anything you can't handle. I just have to ask, really? Because I feel like God gives me stuff I can't handle all the time. The pressure's on. I don't know what to do. I think I should do that. God, why, why is this going on? I just, I feel, just, I'm squirming. I just want to get out from under this. Can you just make it go away, God? I don't think I can handle it. I squirm. I complain. Is the Apostle Paul telling us that it's our ability that's the key factor here? Should we look to our abilities? Should we look to our resources for the power to endure our trials and our temptations? I don't think he's saying that. Because that's not what he did. That's not what the Apostle Paul did. Listen from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul found his power. Paul said just a few chapters ago in chapter 2, verse 3, said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and message were not of plausible words of wisdom, my resources, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of, the power, and of power. A demonstration of Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And where did Paul say that that power that the Spirit provided, what was the source of that? He said, I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the Lord's provision for me. I was weak, I was fearful, I was trembling, I was squirming, I felt the pressure. But God had power for me to endure through the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the Lord's, He was the Lord's provision. Paul says it here. Israelites, they were in the desert. And there was a rock that provided for them. They didn't understand all this. But now we can understand this because we are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. And so we can be told that rock was Christ. And why was Moses not to strike that rock a second time? Because Jesus, the rock, need only be struck once. And when he was struck on the cross, his blood was there for the healing of the nations. It was there to reconcile you to God, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. He is your provision. Paul said, Israelites, they were baptized into Moses, but Moses was an imperfect mediator. You have been baptized into Jesus Christ, the true and right and perfect and good mediator. 
The Israelites, they, they gave in to temptation 40 years in the desert, but Jesus was tempted 40 days in the desert. All the same temptations they faced. And he trusted God and became a perfect savior through his obedience for you. We need to rejoice in God's unchanging character. Jesus rejoiced in God's faithfulness and his sovereignty so that he could say in his greatest temptation, Lord, not your will, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Friends, Jesus not only trusted the Lord to provide, he was the provision. The Lord will provide. That's what Abraham said to his son Isaac. Do you remember this? In Genesis chapter 22, God had asked him to sacrifice his son. Three times in the text, God says, your son, your one and only son. They're getting close to the time of sacrifice, and Isaac says, we have everything we need to make a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Where's the animal? In Abraham's words, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Friends, Jesus was that sacrifice. He is there for us in the hour of temptation. God has committed him to us. He is a high priest that is not unable to sympathize with us in our temptation because he was tempted in every way as we were and are and yet without sin. And friends, God makes this promise to you that he who did not spare his own son, his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him, along with Jesus, provide you with everything that you need. Will you please pray with me? Would you please bow your head right now? I apologize that I've preached a little too long this morning. Um, but we, we need to be in this moment. There is much grace for us in God's word this morning. And if God's word is true, then every person here, this is something that's common to all of us. We're all dealing with all kinds of temptations all the time. And some of us are dealing with some very serious ones a lot of time. So I want us to have some space here where we can, in the quiet of our own hearts, confess our need. Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm feeling the pressure. I've given in. I'm tempted to give in again. Lord, I want to take you at your word this morning.
that you will provide. The reason I know that is that you have provided the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Lord, help me. Help me not to be thrown off by the fact that I face temptations. Lord, help me. Help me to rejoice in your unchanging character, to love that you are faithful, to know that you are sovereign. And help me to, re- help me to rely on your provision of Jesus. So that when Satan is standing in my path, that when the enemy is filling me up with fear, by your grace, I'm going to triumph by faith knowing that he cannot take from us, though often he has tried. Lord, we believe that you will provide. And even though Satan tells us we're helpless and our hope is in vain, that we're never going to see the good thing that we want from you, Lord, we know the truth, and that answers all the questions of our hearts. You will provide. God, it's not in our own strength, It's not in our own goodness. It's because through your grace, we know the great Savior. He is our strong tower. We run to him for safety. He is our strength of power. He will provide. In his name we pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.